This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Now, Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio. Good afternoon and welcome. If you are a Toronto homeowner, did you get one of these? I am holding up a very official yellow notice uh, from the city of Toronto that says important notice action required. And the action required is to attest that you actually live in your home for at least six months a year in order to avoid the new vacancy tax. And you know what? A lot of people think this is a scam. It isn't. And if you don't get that attestation done by February the 2nd, you'll be fined $250. Now, the vacancy tax itself is a lot higher than that. It's 1% of the assessed value of your home. If your home is worth a million dollars, and most everyone's is, uh, that's 10000 bucks. Now, there are a number of exemptions like renovations that have already been permitted under which you'd be allowed to leave the home vacant. And the city says that this move will free up housing and will also generate between 55 and $66 million a year. I'm not really sure how they get to that number. We will be talking to a city official a little bit later, and hopefully uh, he can tell us something about that. So what do you think? Uh, there's also a question of how much it's going to cost to enforce this, among all the other things that the city, frankly, does not enforce. 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740. And now I'm joined by Ellen Ritchie, Managing Partner at Loopstra Nixon LLP and an adjunct professor of law at Toronto Metropolitan University. Phil Soper, CEO of Royal LePage and John Caliendo, co-chair of the ABC Residence Associations. Hello, everyone, and thanks for joining us. Hi, Libby. Thanks for having us. Okay, let us begin with Alan Ritchie. Uh, What's your reaction about this? We've known about this tax, but, uh, you know, frankly, when we got this notice, we thought, you know, this is a little bit aggressive. Yeah, and I I think when I look at these things, I I think about it both as a a citizen and as a lawyer. And, you know, there's a lot of these municipal things that, that don't ultimately get enforced. Certainly the powers are there. The bylaws have been passed properly. Um, the, the question is whether or not they will actually enforce this thing uh, at the end of the day and whether the behavioral impacts that they're trying to achieve will, will actually be achieved. And I think that's, that remains to be seen, but, but we've had clients calling us up and wondering whether or not this is another parking ticket scam, and we've got to tell them, no, it's, uh, you know, it's, it's the real deal. Okay. Uh, let's go to Phil Soper. Um, Phil, you're in the real estate business. So uh, f- first of all, how many, I mean, how many people do you think actually keep their homes vacant and, and why would they do that? 
other than, you know, a long trip or something. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's the the real question here. Is this uh, a political move or is this something that could actually move the needle on housing supply, which we uh, we have a housing supply uh, crisis in the GTA and in large municipalities across the country. We've had a similar tax, a similar policy in place in Vancouver since 2017, and it has shown to move the number of people declaring that their property is open. That may be different than, than the people that actually have it open uh, by about one percent, and uh, that that isn't a lot, but it is material, and it did raise uh, money similar to what the what the uh, proposal says that it can raise. So, where I look at it is if if it's we don't like home flipper or it's house flippers, people who who buy to speculate and flip the, the property uh, like it's a, an equity or something, a stock. Um, if they add value to renovations, that's different, but just house flippers aren't, aren't, aren't helping. So there's nothing wrong with the public policy, and if it does contribute to um, public coffers, and they say they're going to redirect it into affordable housing, which is great, uh, then I have no issue with the the policy at a, at a high level, will it be effective in materially helping our housing supply crisis? No, it's, it's, a, it's a minor move. Yeah, and I'm wondering, it, it, do we have the same kind of demographic? Because we know that uh, in Vancouver, uh, which is closer to Asia Pacific, there there are people there who come from places like China, and it's it's a bit of a, an insurance policy. You know, they live in places that aren't governed that well. And I'm wondering if we even have the same situation here with people who might keep a place vacant for that reason uh, uh i guess either either phil or alan can answer that well look in ontario we've had a, a non-resident speculation tax um for over a year now and i haven't seen a meaningful uh you know drop off in in foreign investment i'm not sure whether or not the stats would support that or not but there's also so many different ways that these taxes can be simply avoided uh, the question is not only, you know, is the policy sound behind it, but are the mechanisms they're using actually going to achieve it? So, uh, you know, if someone's willing to pay the non-resident speculation tax, which is a much bigger burden, um, you know, I, I'd be un, unfazed or, or unconvinced that a 1% per year tax that is questionably enforced is really going to change the behavior. John Caliendo, I gather you're not happy about this. Uh, you actually... Not true at all. I think while we have not yet had an opportunity to poll our residents, um, they've continuously expressed concerns, as others have, about uh, housing availability and affordability issue. Uh, but as a retired investment banker, uh, hedge fund guy, um, the underlying pro- and I agree with the other two speakers, the, the enforceability, the mechanisms to actually make this work are legitimately, you know, dubious. But the underlying problem is a very real problem. The Bank of Canada, you know, Deputy Governor Beaudrey stood up in November 21. Uh, the British Columbia Cullen Commission, they've all stood up and said money laundering, money flows, investor-driven speculation is a real problem in this country, well, at least in British Columbia. 
In, British, in the case of the Bank of Canada, they said it's driving the inflate, the, um, the housing bubble, uh, the evaluation bubble. So the idea here is not, uh, I don't think the intent here is to, you know, challenge the, uh, the quintessential snowbird who might leave their housing va- house vacant for three or four months. Well, yeah, no, you, it, it's you, uh, there's a six-month window, as yeah, there is exactly. with with OHIP. So, uh, uh, so, so your base. Are you saying that you're okay with it? Or absolutely, if, if we can take some of the pressure, the problem is it's, it's such an easy thing to circumvent. So, to your other two speakers' points, this is going to be very easy to circumvent. But the underlying problem is very real. There are there are money flows, especially into the condo development industry which I've financed, that are very much offshore, very much you know, speculator-driven. If those units end up in the rental market, full-time rental market, that's great. But when they don't, that's the problem. And that's I, the I problem agree 100%. To address. And, you know, you know John, I, I see that in my practice all the time, that what we have is, is a problem that is caused by the inability of the municipal government to speak to the provincial government and the provincial government's inability to speak to the federal government, because these are problems of, of income tax non-reporting, uh, provincial system that oversees the land registry that has no ability whatsoever to communicate to the federal system that, that oversees the income tax. And now we've got the municipal government coming in trying to use a bylaw to solve all these problems. And, and, and ultimately, yeah. you know, there's, there's game playing and, and uh, you know, no government talks to the other one and, and you can circumvent all of these things. Okay, let's okay. just, just hold on, hold, hold on a sec. Question. Hold on a sec. I'm going to take a call from Jill in Toronto. Hello, Jill. Hi, Jill. Um, Thank you. And I listen to your program and you're doing a wonderful job. Thank you. Thanks a lot. Go ahead, yeah. you're on the air. And we got this notice, and first when we looked at it, we said, ah, it doesn't apply to us because we don't have any property that's vacant for six months. And then we read it again and said, ah, uh-huh. it says everybody must uh, apply. So we called that uh, portal and got the answer that the portal is not working. It's under repair. Uh, so well, then uh, we are saying, why do you send out notice when your portal is not ready? Um, then I called 311. It says, uh, call 311 if you need assistance. So I called 311. They said, oh, yeah, it's not working, but we are trying to fix it, and hopefully we'll fix it by the 15th. What um, kind of uh, uh, this is organization? Uh, all I can tell you is that, that we did the attestation online at my home yesterday, and it was fine. So uh, I would say uh, try again. And I think you can also uh, send it in by mail. I'm not sure about that, but uh, we had no problem yesterday. Uh, But you're right, that happens a lot too. They say go ahead and do it, and then there's some glitch. Uh, Jill, thanks for your call. Um, It's interesting, Libby. One of the things that's popped up in Vancouver is a cottage industry around um, making your home appear occupied. Now, these people are conceivably still, well, they are uh, breaking the law if they reported occupied and it's not. But there are lots of small businesses now that will walk people in and out of your house on a regular basis. Uh, They keep a newspaper running. Uh, they, They have, you know, basically smart devices that are turning lights on and off. It used to be 
people tracked uh, electric uh, electricity use or or the uh, government could as a indication of whether the place was being used but that isn't a key now so entrepreneurs will find a, a, a way around this and we have an airbnb moratorium if you want to call it uh, that in toronto and people are working their way around that and the enforcement seems to be very lax uh, so there's a credibility, a cry wolf uh, problem that the that the city has as they roll out this new legislation. Okay. Uh, first of all, people, I'm I'm hearing all kinds of noises in your rooms, uh, which will make it hard for our listeners to hear you. So uh, please be mindful of that. Uh, uh, I read one estimate that it will cost $3.1 million to enforce this with about 25 staffers. Alan Ritchie, what do you think of that? Gosh, if they, if they enforce it any way that they're any way along the lines of how they enforce building permits and unpermitted work, um, you know, I know when, when our clients complain to the city, they can expect that someone's going to follow up on that eight months later, largely after <laughs> it's been complete, uh, if at all. You're right. And so, you know, those 25 workers, whether or not they actually deploy them or not, I, I don't think that's realistic. This, this can't be looked at as a reasonable money-making opportunity. I think it's really about trying to create some behavior modification, and uh, I think it's questionable whether or not it will achieve that goal. Well, I'm, I'm looking at the list of exemptions where you could keep the house empty for a bit. Death is one of them, death of the registered owner. Repairs or renovations, but there's a clarification that it has to be repairs and renovations that have already been permitted. And I think you just underscored a big problem that uh, getting a permit for anything these days is no easy feat, Phil. Well, a- absolutely. And, and part of the issue, the city has for years not enforced the building standards as it relates to basement apartments. And they've sort of said that uh, intentionally. They say we need the basement apartments more than we need them to be compliant. So we're not going to enforce that. And when we think about the problems of getting building permits, there, there's the vast majority of things that you need a permit for are, are just there so the city knows what's going on. It has nothing to do with whether or not the renovations are going to be done to code. So a number of entrepreneurs, if they're buying houses and intending to create rental housing, they want to be in there and actually doing these changes and getting it ready to put out for rent very, very quickly. And in this case, we're actually slowing down the process we're making renovations less desirable because now we're increasing the cost to say, notwithstanding the fact that you may have had a perfect renovation done completely to code that that didn't get the proper permitting, we're now going to hit you with this tax or we're now going to exclude you. So we, we've you know, thrown some red tape into the mix here, which, which could have the intent of, of chilling some of these renovation projects. Hmm. Let us take a call from Maureen in North York. Hello, Maureen. Hi. Uh, g- good afternoon. Um, as a senior, I want to say when I got that notice and my senior friends also, we were really kind of frightened. We thought, what's happening here? We're living here. Is someone taking over our property or something? The wording is very explosive, and I think it should have been worded differently and explain this instead of saying, you know, 
notice of non-occupancy, just to say, and also I think, because there are still people out there, and I know a couple who do not have computers, it should have included a paper form. Uh, you're right. I'm just looking at it. It's a yellow piece of paper, and it does not include a paper form, though uh, I didn't deal with it, so um, there may be, and I, I think I had the envelope, so you're right. It does not have a paper form. It tells you to call 311, which I always say, call 311, good luck with that. Uh, yes. But anyway, Maureen, it's it's not really that frightening. Um, You know, as I said, we did it online. It took a few minutes. So it wasn't really a big deal, though getting it is like, what the heck is that? Well, the the problem could arise with with someone who doesn't file it. They're automatically going to add the $250 fine to the tax bill and have the ability to add the tax on the full 1% of the assessed value just for not filing the form. So I think they're going to have a real enforcement problem with those who don't file it, you'll have hundreds of thousands of homes where people just didn't do the homework, and now they've got to reverse these these major tax bills that people are going to get. <laughs> yeah, and I think they deem the home vacant if you don't file. Uh, I'm not sure about that because they they seem to be making a distinction uh, about making the property status declaration and having having it uh, and having a false declaration uh, as as they make the distinction between but that and penalty, having vacant. If you, if you actually look at the bylaw, the penalty for, for failing to file the declaration is 250 at the beginning, but there's also a consequence of them just assessing the value. So they may or may not not to do that, but the bylaw simply does allow them to do that. If you fail to file it, they will just eventually assess that tax. Well, there's an yeah, appeal the, assumption, there. the assumption we've taken is that if you if you don't file, you're going to end up being fined the small amount, two hundred and fifty dollars, and you're going to be assessed. So that's that's a safe position. I think you should take it as a homeowner if you decide, you know, you're going to protest this move uh, as an infringement on your rights or something, and not file. You can face a, a very substantial tax bill. Uh, I think people are just going to be, some people are just not going to be quite sure what to do, or they won't have computers, or 311 won't answer. I think there's going to be stuff like that. But if they, in fact, hire 25 people uh, making good city salaries to do this, then uh, they'll be busy, I guess. I'm doubtful. Undoubtful. I mean, there's apparently a shortage of uh, city workers as well. I'm going to uh, bring in Casey Brendan from the city's revenue services. I have a few questions. Hi, Casey. Thanks for joining us. Good morning. Thanks very much. Okay, so my first question is, you say that this will raise between 55 and $66 million. How did you arrive at that number? Uh, that was a number that was estimated. We we looked to the city of Vancouver, who has a similar program, and, and without actually knowing how many vacant properties we have in Toronto, we used their assumption that 1% of all residential properties will be vacant. So if we take that and apply that to Toronto, 1% of Toronto's residential properties could be vacant with an average 
current value assessment and a 1% tax rate that would raise between 55 and 66 million. But uh, we have a very different situation here, I was saying, that in Vancouver, uh, it's closer to the Asia-Pacific Rim, and there are people there who, you know, have houses in Vancouver as a safety thing because their governments are not so great. And I'm not sure that we have the same situation here. Here in Toronto, there are a lot of property owners, overseas property owners, whose kids go to school here, so the property is uh, tenanted then. Am I wrong? And, and No, and you're quite right because um, we don't really know whether we have a lot of uh, vacant and unoccupied units in the city of Toronto. We may or may not have the same problem that Vancouver was experiencing. And, and so this, is, this will be a learning experience for us as we go this, through this for the first time and actually find out how many vacant units are out there. I've also seen an estimate that it will take 25 staffers and cost $3.1 million to even begin to enforce this. Is that right? Uh, the, the numbers that you've quoted come from the staff report that, yes, indicate that we, we planned on operating costs of $3 million per year um, and that is to provide compliance, to, to answer questions, to respond to inquiries. Um, and, and, of course, we will have to see if we adopt a, a reduced compliance program, if we don't have that many uh, properties that are, that are deemed vacant, um, those numbers could decrease as well. Uh, so a, a couple of other questions. So in terms of the exemptions for this, repairs and renovations are one of them. And uh, you uh, it's been clarified that you mean renovations that have been permitted, but it's very difficult to get a permit. Uh, yes, it, it, the, 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 the exemption, if your home is under renovation, is, is to show that if, if the property is uninhabitable because it's undergoing renovations, then, then you certainly can't rent it out. And so all we would look for there is evidence that a homeowner is actively undertaking renovations. If they're, if they're waiting for permits, we would take that into consideration when we examine these things. So yes, we realize there are all kinds of circumstances that may prolong a renovation period of time. The, the, the goal in this is to not find those kind of units, it's to find the units that are purposely being kept vacant, um, you know, that could otherwise be rented out. And uh, my final question to you is, uh, uh, our other panelists seem to think that if you do not declare, first you'll get fined $250, but uh, that is just the first step and you will be assessed. Or is there some investigation that would happen in the meantime, or is that just a straight line from fine to assessment? Well, the, the, we will, the City of Toronto will give uh, property owners every opportunity to declare the status of their property. And so even a late declaration, we will send out notifications following the first due date if people haven't submitted their response with a with a with a reminder to make a declaration. 
it, it is the case where we do not receive any kind of declaration from a property owner, then the property will be deemed to be vacant uh, as a result of, of no response, um, and the tax will apply. But, but again, the, the a property owner in that situation, had they been deemed vacant and they can establish uh, through the appeals and the complaints process that, in fact, they weren't vacant, then, then, then they would not be subject to the tax on appeal. Okay, Casey, thank you very much for clarifying those things. Appreciate it. Most welcome. Thank you. Okay. And uh, just before we wrap this up, uh, Phil Soper, what did you think of what you just heard? It fit with um, our expectations of uh, how the city was going to manage the program. I think people should treat it seriously, and it is going to impact people everywhere. It's going into Ottawa. I know it'll come in in Montreal. Foreign... um, ownership or foreign investment in Canadian cities is it's prolific right across the country. You'd be surprised, even in places like uh, Halifax, we're seeing um, Asian money. That'll obviously quiet down as the federal government institutes its moratorium uh, for a couple of years. But Canada remains a really important or a very solid place to invest in property. We've got a, some 1.8 million homes a shortage of some 1.8 million homes relative to other advanced uh, nations per capita. Uh, and uh, that's going to put upward pressure on property prices over the over the coming decade. People know that. And, and so putting in place guidelines to help eliminate people just using a home in a city that's shortage of homes um, as a, an investment uh, isn't a bad thing. Whether or not it's effective, that remains to be seen. Uh, John, what did you think of you just heard, what you just I, heard? I agree 100%. I think, in fact, I would encourage you to invite the minister, federal minister of finance, uh, who, when asked about this issue, uh, her response was, well, it shows a confidence that offshore investors have in Canada. Not the right answer. Uh, invite also the provincial minister of finance onto your show. This is a Canada-wide uh, issue. The data shows that the Pacific Rim invests aggressively in the GTA, but it's not just the Pacific Rim. Uh, it's uh, offshore money flows are coming from every region of the world, and they're driving this. And this is a Band-Aid. And the question comes back to, as your other uh, guest said, you know, the effectiveness of enforce, um, enforceability, uh, and certainly in short-term rental enforceability, is non-existent in our neighborhoods, whether they're going to do a better job with this. We'll see. Alan Ritchie, last 20 seconds to you. I, I think the key here is is better communication between the different levels of government. The <laughs> provincial government has the data. The federal government enforces the income tax. This whole concept of, of speculation and foreign money gets solved when the income tax system matches up with the provincial system and the municipal system, because all the data is there. They just need to work with it together so that, that people can't skirt these taxes so simply. Okay, thank you so much, John Caliendo, Phil Soper, and Alan Ritchie. Sure. Bye-bye. Pleasure. Take care. Take care. Pleasure, we are going to take a break. And when, when we come back, a much more pleasant topic. We're going to talk about food. We're going to talk about trends in food, in restaurants, out of restaurants, at home, the top recipes of the year, all of that when we come back and we want to hear from you. Uh, what about you? And of course, it's all in the context of huge food price increases. So there's a lot to talk about.
You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Zneimer on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. And uh, it is the season for festive gatherings, both entertaining at home and dining out. And it's also the season of lists, what's hot, what's not, what are the latest trends. So let's talk about food. And of course, the context is the huge food inflation that we are experiencing. And there's more of that on the horizon. I want to hear from you. The numbers 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740. And uh, I'd like to welcome Lucy Waverman, food columnist for The Globe and Mail, and Renee Suen, food editor at BlogTO, to discuss food and restaurant trends amid the holidays. Hi to both of you. Thanks for joining us. Hi, Libby. Hi. Hi, Libby. And hi, Lucy. It's great to hear from you, too. <laughs> well, thank you. Okay. Uh, so <laughs> let's <laughs> let's begin with Renee. Is there anything that you would put your finger on in terms of restaurants that's the biggest uh, trend or whatever of the year? We know that restaurants basically were just getting back into business uh, after the pandemic, and uh, what's been happening since then? A lot are complaining it's very hard to stay in business. What do you see? Well, I guess the one thing with restaurants, if we were looking at just the overall scope of things, they're in a great way that we are able to dine back at restaurants, so it's really good to see restaurants being filled once again, although there is still a lot of the sensibilities, you know, being able to operate around a time where... The pandemic's technically not over, and we're going back into kind of regular mode, but there's just um, the ability for businesses to be conscious of what their customers' needs are. So we still have that in place in terms of some physical distancing. Most of the times with restaurants, there are some still uh, requesting that uh, customers or diners do wear their mask when they leave the table and other sorts of um you know, technologies at the table, like no longer are many restaurants having paper menus. We see a lot of QR codes. So that's kind of something that was uh, put in place during the time of, I guess, the height of the pandemic. And we still see that present. Last night, I was dining at a restaurant named Novello, and they still have, I guess, these like glass, plexiglass sort of wall installations between tables. So um, I don't think we're going to see a lot of that going away. So if we're talking about like remnants of the past two years, um, that's part of it within the dining room. But I also feel like we'll probably talk about it within the segment. um, It also influences some of the decisions in food choices that uh, restaurants are either offering diners or diners themselves are gravitating towards. Lucy, during the pandemic, more people cooked at home. Is that trend sticking? And what kind of stuff are people into? Um, the, uh, the trend is sticking. People are cooking more at home. Um, it's a bit of a generational thing, I think. I think uh, younger people, Gen X, uh, Gen Y, excuse me, and um, po- probably millennials have con- are continuing to eat out as much as they did before. I think after that, 
people are are cooking at home. Um, I, there's reasons. I you know so, some people, older people, for example, are worried about going out and going into restaurants and getting COVID, um, and they would prefer to eat at home. But there is also a trend towards people actually finding that they enjoyed cooking who had never cooked before or who had never enjoyed cooking before, and. Another little trend on that is that husbands and wives or partners are cooking together. Hmm. And that is something that has really changed because, you know, for a long time, oh, the kitchen is the woman's domain and all the rest of it. Not now. And, in fact, if you go to the grocery store, take a look. You'll see a lot more men grocery shopping. Oh, yeah, but sometimes it's the men grocery shopping and the women cook. I I find that whether it's a man or a woman, there's usually one person in charge. (laughs) I say laughing. I guess, yeah, and who in your household. And and sometimes it can lead to a little friction, shall we say? Well, yeah, I think that's true. So... My husband and I do it this way. He gets complete control of the kitchen, you know, one night a week, and he loves it. So I think that's happening, too. So before he would say, let's go out or do something like that, now he's actually cooking. So I do think that this is a trend um, amongst uh, maybe not the really young people, but people who have been, you know, who've got kids and and eating out is getting very expensive, as I'm sure Renee will will tell you. It, well, Renee, I have noticed that I, I don't eat out that much. It it costs a fortune now. It, it's true. I feel like um, I, I think part of the, it's not even just the pandemic itself, but as we were coming into that period, there was beginning to be a lot of more social awareness in terms of uh, the way that restaurants operate or even kitchen and staffing and and needs and how much of that service industry were either underpaid um, or they did not receive uh, the, I guess, compensation that you would typically expect if you were working, I don't know, like 80 hours a week or whatnot. Oh, my God. Or even, even um, like service staff where I think this was a big debate prior to the pandemic and, you know, some restaurants have since tried to um, incorporate this, which is um, tipping whether or not you tip or whether or not that should be part of the salary so that um, employees didn't have to depend on uh, tips from customers and and vice versa, you know, whether or not customers felt like it was, I think this became part of the debate, whether or not it was their responsibility kind of to supplement um, incomes, especially during the pandemic when we heard of a lot of individuals in the service industry not either being able to apply for EI or, or anything like that just because, you know, maybe they didn't report all their hours or they didn't have the same amount of hours that they actually worked that were reported and and whether or not they reported their income because part of it was tips. You know, it's just a whole huge debate. And so coming out of this sort of, I guess, big, um, big, like, Ahead, things coming out ahead with both the tipping situation and also the understanding that, you know, this is an industry that generally doesn't get paid as much as uh, other kind of jobs, uh, is that we either have found that a lot of people have moved away from the industry during the pandemic because, you know, they were looking for jobs and they didn't come back, which meant that when dining rooms reopened, there was a huge lack of staff. So either in order to entice uh, staff to come back, uh, restaurants had to uh, accommodate for that, 
offering either higher wages or just the minimum wage has risen. Um, also dealing with things like, um, you know, all the lost revenue during the time when there were the closures of restaurants that compounded with the fact of, I think we touched upon food inflation, just a whole bunch of different costs. Um, if anybody knows how a restaurant operates, generally speaking, it's on very thin margins. So to uh, have the restaurant absorb all these is difficult. And so that ends up in one way or another translating to what customers see. So that mm-hmm. might be on the menu itself, you'll see risen prices or um, some, like I mentioned, some restaurants have gotten away, like our sorry, gone away, done away with tipping and actually incorporated that into the yep. service charges. Okay, let's take a call from Sita in Mississauga. Hi, Sita. Hi, Libby. Thanks so much. Um, for gatherings, have guests bring their favorite dishes, um, drinks, and desserts. This way the hosts don't have to do all, all this work and have stress and expense. And this way family and friends can spend quality time with each other. More potlucks. Good idea. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, we've got to take another break. We'll be back with more of this. And I also want to touch on uh, the type of food that is going to be hot, trendy, popular. I'm, I'm looking at, I just got the New York Times uh, most popular recipes of 2022. Some of them have me shaking my head. We'll talk about all of that when we come back. And we also want to hear from you about your food thoughts. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Schneimer on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. We are talking about food and food trends at the end of 2022. And I am looking at the New York Times list of top recipes. And the top recipe is San Francisco-style Vietnamese American garlic noodles. And I've seen a lot of recipes like this that seem to have a fusion of Asian ingredients and Italian ingredients. Now, I love Asian cuisine and I love Italian cuisine, but, you know, the idea of miso in my spaghetti, frankly, just does not appeal. Uh, Lucy, is this a big trend or uh, just on this? I don't think it's a really big trend. I think miso, in a sense, is a big trend because you're seeing miso uh, being used in so many things um, that you maybe not would have thought to put them in before. Um, You know, you've got miso in salad dressings, you've got miso in marinades, and they're being used, and the miso is being used not not because it's Japanese, but because it has an element of umami about it. And if you put it into a marinade, for example, you do get that that kind of rich taste from it. So um, I'm all in favor of, of doing things like that. Noodles, you know what? Noodles are always the most popular thing, whether they're spaghetti or they're Asian, or even if they're mixed together. The people love noodles, and it's not a trend. It has been there forever. I mean, I think it's changed a little. It used to be always Italian, and now it's basically all Asian. So a fusion dish, you know, somebody's trying hard. 
Okay, well, I don't know. I'd use I'd use a more culturally appropriate noodle <laughs> for this than I have. <laughs> no, seriously. Um, I haven't seen the recipe, so I can't comment. I, I know. Well, I'm. I, you know, there there are numbers of them. Do you uh, have your finger on anything that you think will be the big food trend or the big uh, hot cuisine coming up for 2023? Yes, I think. Personally, I think that um, that one of the trends is, well, let me backtrack, okay? So we've had all this plant-based meat, and, you know, people have been using it. But it turns out that it's more processed than processed foods. So people are turning away from it now. But those who want to not eat so much meat are turning to mushrooms as a substitute. For example... Um, my tacky mushrooms has been named the food of the year. Oh, really? Year. Yeah. And by whom? Um, um, I'll have to. Okay, never. <laughs> it was. Um, it, it was the American food of the year. Anyway, mushrooms take the place of meat in so many things. You know, you can roast a mushroom. You can stuff a mushroom with with savory stuffing for for Christmas, right? And then people who don't eat turkey or meat have a really good meaty uh, flavor for them. Um, you can chop mushrooms up and use them in a bolognese sauce instead of um, using meat. So mushrooms are becoming a huge seller. And it's good because they grow, you know, they grow on logs, they grow on, they grow in earth, but inside. They're really healthy, and they, they're never going to hurt you. Renee, is there a trend in restaurants, either by cuisine or by style, small plates, big plates, anything like that? I think the major trend that we've seen and will continue to see is something called sustainability, or um, in, in various forms, things like uh, restaurants and ingredients, especially if they're, I guess you could call them a little bit more chef-y, um, would be turning towards more like transparent supply chains, you know, maybe focusing on using ingredients from like more of a domestic market. So in terms of like local dining or not just the stereotypical local in the traditional sense, but getting ingredients from actual farms and, and producers and fishers that we know of that are actually in the community or close by. So there's that trust and traceability, knowing where it comes from, who made it, what's in it. Um, that same focus is a, a little bit of the, I, I don't want to call it, you know, like the local foraging or finding ways to um, utilize those ingredients in ways that are not like typical. So if you're talking about environmentally friendly type of dining, there's like the zero waste or upcycling foods. Uh, a restaurant in Toronto, I think, does a fantastic job at doing that is called Ration Food Lab. Uh, they do have, like encompass all those ideas where they do work with local producers, uh, local farms. They forage for their own goods. They ferment they uh, dry, they cure their own ingredients, uh, and that's all presented in um, a changing a changing menu. Um, and everything's either ethically raised, or you know they are looking at the welfare of farmers or laborers that are that are treated uh, ethically. And so I think that's a, a translation of what they're also seeing that consumers are also interested in, in um, supporting to know that where their food is coming from is from a source that they feel good about. 
So that's one big, I think that's one big theme, uh, in addition to what uh, Lucy was saying, but maybe in a different way, because we are going to continue to see the plant-based um, foods, uh, anything that might be a substitute for meats or even milk alternatives. I think the latest one now, it's not just oat, it's not just, you know, uh, in this past it was like almond and such, but now it's like potato milk. And and to me, it's sometimes it it baffles my mind because I don't know where you would milk a potato. But you know that sort of maybe idea. it's a it's starchy. Like, it's a starchy thing, <laughs> Lucy. From the other side of this, from the side of the diner, uh, what do you think diners are looking for? And is there a newer or a more unfamiliar type of cuisine people want to try, or or anything like that? Or are they actually looking for a restaurant that's sustainable? Um, to be honest with you, I'd like to feel that people were, and I think there is a nucleus um, of people who do, but the majority of diners are really just going out to have a good time and to eat good food. Um, they, they, you know, Italian restaurants here in Toronto are packed, just packed, because people... All restaurants... I've been trying to get a restaurant reservation for weeks for something special. Forget about it. No, that is true. Uh, That is actually true in New York and L.A. It's true everywhere. Um, That's a really interesting restaurant. But there are lots of restaurants that are serving, you know, kind of fun food, you know, that people that that people are kind of enjoying. Um, They um, things like grilled cheese sandwiches. I know that sounds like very basic, but people are really looking for, you know, kind of comfort. Um, and these, the, they, they look for it in restaurants and they're looking for it in cooking as well. Also, I do have to mention the influence of TikTok in all of this because TikTok for whatever reasons, really is influencing how people cook at home and what they're looking for. For example, butterboards. Who heard of butterboards <laughs> a, year, a year ago? And now they're blaming the shortage of butter on people going out making butterboards. Um, and now, of course, butterboards are passe, and so you're having cream cheese boards and hummus boards. You know, it, it, it never will stop. Just, just, just to clarify for people, so you take a board and you put, whether it's butter or cream cheese or whatever, you smear it on the board and then you put all your other things on top of that. Right. Right. Uh, Renee, one thing that we always follow here that I am curious, where are we at in terms of noise in restaurants, people, especially people in our older demographic, we go out, we want to talk to our friends or our loved ones, as opposed to texting them across the table. And so where are we at? And sometimes, I mean, I know I actually made a reservation at a hot restaurant. I was all excited and I started to look at reviews and even the millennial reviewer said it was deafening. So, so much for that. So is this a a thing or just do restaurateurs still think it makes their place more fun? Well, I, I, this I, I feel like it would be a question really for those who are operating their businesses. Um, I really feel like at this point in time, uh, it's it's kind of hard to uh, cap 
the enthusiasm, I'm assuming, of diners when they come out. It's been a while uh, since we've been able to gather and, and socialize this way, although I do feel that... Um, it, it really depends on the venue. Uh, there are some venues that encourage that quite quite a bit, and then there's others that um, are wary. And I feel like it's just the it's kind of buyer beware when when you know you're going to go to a space that is probably a little bit more energetic and encourages that sort of social interaction. That it's likely going to be a little bit. It's uh, it's not no, social <laughs> interaction. There's a din, and they put loud music on uh, top then, of yeah. it. Then yeah, I feel like there is still that for the vibe. Um, it just really depends on the business itself. I, I do know that as I, it's not an age thing. I think it's just the, the whole situation of wanting to be able to come out and enjoy your your other you know dining partner or companion's company and maybe having conversations. Um, there are some locations and spaces that are a bit more conducive to that. And then, of course, there's others which are, we, we are seeing some of those kind of come up as well, like more supper club places where they, it is about the energy and the environment. Um, and part of it is, I guess, the uh, just being in a space like that and, and um, knowing the difference between the two. Uh, whether or not certain places are are putting a cap on noise levels that I really can't say. I just know that um, when I make dining decisions or when I do um, write about them for our, 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 I guess, our publication, that I'm, I'm aware that, you know, these are the situations that there could be. And then I will say that it's a lively environment and it's just kind of like one of those be aware that this is the case. And we're going to see, I think, a continuation of uh, spaces that do have that. In fact, I think tonight I'm going to be checking out one of them for Blog to you. Uh, and it is really about the ambiance um, that kind of supersedes, uh, I guess, the traditional sort of um, when you go out with a companion to to have that sort of interaction between the two of you. I feel like um, those are kind of then more of the serious restaurants that we do have a good selection of here in Toronto. Um, and it's it's really, uh, I guess, not not one one particular genre for anybody but that's the great thing about dining in a city like this is that we have something for everyone and that yeah i don't think that we're going to see a a decrease of energetic spaces i guess we'll call it that Uh, let's call them noisy lucy do (laughs) lucy do people are do people like is there enough uh uh, disclosure in advance and and no. is it still a demographic thing i mean is it fair yes. to say young people like it so they can't talk to each other and and older uh, yes. people don't i i was sitting in a restaurant where the, the people which was really really noisy and the people at the next table were actually texting each other because you couldn't hear anything they would text each other anyway <laughs> I've seen that many times. I know it's it's. I, I find I find that I do find it difficult. Um, I, I I I like to have a lively atmosphere, but does it have to be so loud? Uh, you know what the outcome of all of this has been, which has nothing to do with food, is that younger and younger people are going deaf. Mm. And well, yeah, and it's 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 not just that. I mean, if it was, you, you by the, by the by the end of it, you can't hear the music and you can't hear the people that you're with. That's uh, right. And I don't I don't know how that is pleasant, but anyway, it's it. What I'm getting from uh, Renee and from you is that it's it's not an issue on the radar of the industry. Um, I think it, I think what Renee said is right. It's an issue when you get into the higher-end restaurants. Okay, well, yeah. Um, 
I'm looking at the clock. We have like a little over a minute. Uh, so I'm going to split it evenly. 30 seconds each, no more. Renee, your 30 seconds. What do you want to leave us with on food for 2023? I think 2023, we're going to see a continuation of uh, what is what Lucy had already mentioned, nostalgic eats. We're going to see a lot of restaurants that are either going to tap into that or the fact that uh, those, like, you know, you reinvented, reimagined, like, macaroni and cheese, pizza bites, you know, uh, sodas and things like that, that might have a functional benefit. Uh, we'll, we'll see more of, we'll also see more non-alcoholic alternatives, too. So not just in spirits, beers, but also wine. So I know we talked mainly about food, but we didn't really talk about the other, I guess, half of when you go out to dine, uh, also the drinks. So we'll see, I think, a lot of that in addition to, um, you know, other inventive ways to maximize, I guess, uh, the dollar with things like tin fish and, um, and I guess, more humble vegetables, especially since now we can't afford, like, romaine and other things <laughs> like that. Lucy? Well, I think that for people who are eating at home or and cooking, that we have to redefine what value is because um, everything is now so expensive. Um, we have to try to understand what we can do with less expensive ingredients. Um, for example, less expensive cuts of meat. I mean, you can make um, great meat dishes out of chuck or the less, you know, just less expensive uh, red meats. Um, we don't have to have fillet roasts all the all the time. I think that there is a new look at, in food. There is a new look at sugar. The, uh, the sugar that is inhabiting or lurking in a lot of processed foods is being taken out and is being replaced, believe it or not, with dates. And the reason for that is that it's, it's perceived that dates are much healthier. They are much healthier. They have a lot of natural ingredients and they're good for you, but they are very high in sugar. So you oh, can't... Lucy, we're sorry. We're, I'm looking at the clock. We're over time. I'm oh, really no. sorry to cut you off. Well, that's okay. Okay. Uh, so um, we'll talk again about food really soon. This has been a great conversation. And thank you so much, Lucy Waverman and Renee Suen. Thank you. Well, thank you for having us. Good afternoon, everyone. Okay. Okay. Uh, That's all the time we have, people. I'm taking a couple of days off. I will be back here on Monday, and we'll talk then. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.